This is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and it is the last Sunday before we get to uh, Palm Sunday and the solemn and holy season we call Holy Week. But this week we begin to shift gears slightly so that the themes that are given to us in the biblical readings have something to do with the themes that are going to emerge through Holy Week and then as part of the Easter proclamation of new life and transformation. So I'm going to preach about all three readings from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which may suggest some things to us about how we understand the idea of past as prologue, from the epistle uh, of Paul to the Philippians, where we have an elaborate and rather uh, self-aggrandizing defense of his apostleship, but a focus on the importance of understanding Jesus as, it is, as he is described in the epistle to the Hebrews as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And finally, in the gospel where Jesus has his feet anointed by Mary of Mary and Martha fame. And there's a line in the gospel that is often quoted by, uh, at least when I was a kid, my parents and their friends would rather triumphantly say, the poor will always be with you. So maybe we need to say something about what that means particularly with regard to how we understand uh, our duties and obligations as we become spiritually, emotionally, and mentally transformed in Christ. The early Christian church, the New Testament church, following on Jesus himself, read their sacred scriptures, what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, in such a way as to say, if our eyes and ears had been opened, we would have seen in our own sacred literature the coming of the Savior predicted and God's plan for the cosmos made clear to us from the beginning insofar as we understood God's abiding faithfulness and moving in a direction that now brings us to Jesus Christ, who is the unique focus of the divine presence for Christian people. So when they read things like this reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, here's the conclusion they came to. It says here, Isaiah says, I am doing, behold, I am doing a new thing. Well, Isaiah wasn't talking about Jesus himself. We read that, retro retrojecting back into it and say, it's clear to us that this is what is meant by virtue of our own experience, by virtue of the transformation that we have felt. But Isaiah is describing a new thing that he sees present uh, in God's plan for the cosmos in a way in which the people of the covenant now understand themselves. So what he understands this to mean is that God is announcing through the great prophets of Israel 
that the people of the covenant are not vested with exclusive privileges that stand them apart from everybody, but vest them with important responsibilities and obligations with regard to extending the invitation that God is making through the prophets for all the people of God to come into God's saving embrace. Isaiah is announcing, and it will be recapitulated by the Savior, that the people of the covenant are on the point, so to speak, the thin edge of the wedge, to be driven into any stubbornness with regard to understanding their religious, spiritual, emotional, and mental outlook as exclusive, and to understand their role and responsibility to be ambassadors of inclusion. And so the new thing that Jesus will describe and that the early Christians will describe will be said from the standpoint that saying, if you consulted our sacred literature, our holy scriptures, you will have seen this uh, uh, to be so. Remember, early Christians, the New Testament Christians, when they talked about the Holy Scriptures, they weren't talking about the New Testament. There was no New Testament. I'm not saying that to be a debunker. I'm saying that uh, when it's, when it's, Saint, when it's uh, in First Timothy or Second Timothy, that what he's talking about is the Old Testament. That's his sacred scriptures because he was writing what will ultimately become the Christian scriptures, you know, but they hadn't been all written yet and they hadn't been all put together in the form that we understand them. So we're talking about the sacred literature of God's people that we understood to be inspired in the same sense that our Christian scriptures, we believe, to be in, will be inspired also by their writers. So we take from this reading from Isaiah that each one of us is part of the new thing that God is doing. Always throughout the great 50 days of Easter, I remind us that it is through our liturgy, through our worship, that we begin to see those parts of our faith and belief that later became theological pronouncements, that later became the written biblical witness as flowing out of our common worship together, and that there are in the great 50 days of Easter, which is the central post in the Christian year, four important themes. And one of those themes is that we listen to, in the Bible, the rehearsal of the history of God's saving work in the world. It's called, in biblical scholarly terms, the history of salvation. And the history of salvation, written by those who believe themselves to be part of it, understood it primarily in the ancient Near East to be corporate. They understood it as the word to the people of which they were a part. And so it is important to realize that, but you and I have for the last 
300 years in the West been living in a culture and in a world that focuses on the individual. So what we're talking about is how does this affect me? How do I feel about this? There's no use being a curmudgeon about it and throwing water on it. That's the way we have been thinking about how this works. So the way we affirm this is to say this word that was given corporately to the biblical writers and whose own thinking understood it primarily corporate first, but personal second. That means that your personal history is part of the history of salvation. And what you have been through is important. And learning how to think about it and learning how to use it in some way is going to help you in your spiritual nurture and maturity. I mentioned to you that we always need to think, you know, Isaiah is rehearsing to the people the tradition of Israel. He is rehearsing to them their past. One of the things that this culture has struggled with for a long time is, is it true that past is prologue? Which means what you've been through in your life, your personal history... It defines who you are now, it has influenced who you are now, and affects who you are now. So how do we think about that? Well, you've heard me say a gazillion times, the problem with that is understanding past is prologue. You know, I've been a pastor for a while now, and you get people who come in and sit down and say, well, you know, I have family of origin issues. Do you want to hear mine? Marching from one horror to the next? <laughs> Here's the problem. The same cause has paradoxical effects. Which means a child raised in a scrupulously neat family is either going to be a neatnik or a slob or something in between. Past experience is no predictor of future behavior in absolute terms. Somebody said to me after the 8 o'clock liturgy that a good friend of his a couple of years ago said, you know, it's okay to look at your past, but don't stare at it. And a lot of us spend too much time staring at our past. Isaiah says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Not repudiating the past, but understanding the past in light of the present circumstances and the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us. Episcopalians believe there are three things that we understand are authoritative for us in the way in which we understand our faith and belief and Christian living. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. 
And so when Episcopalians use the term tradition, they do not mean traditionalism. Forty years ago, Mason Williams, one of the writers on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, did a comedy routine on tradition. And he said when, uh, 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 sometime before he got up and di did the routine, he was at his sister's house, and his sister was preparing a leg of lamb to cook for them. And so he was in the kitchen, and he saw his sister take the bone of the leg of lamb and cut the tendon and fold the bone back this way, tie it off and put it in the pan. And so his, he said to his sister, how come you do that when you cook a leg of lamb? And she said, well, when I was a kid, I always watched mother do that, and that's the way she prepares a leg of lamb. She cuts it to fold and puts it in the thing. So as luck would have it, about a month later, he was at his mother's house, and she was cooking a leg of lamb. And he was in the kitchen, and he noticed her cutting the tendon, folding bone back, putting a lamb in the pan. And he said, Mom, how come you do that? And he said, well, you know, when I was a kid, your grandmother uh, showed me how to prepare a leg of lamb, and this is always how she did it. So, as luck would have it, about another six weeks later, he was at his grandmother's house, and she was cooking a leg of lamb. And he noticed that her grand his grandmother cut the ten, fold the leg back, put the leg of lamb in the pan. And he said, Grandma, how come you do that? And she said, well, you know, when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and all we had was a pan this size. <laughs> so I always had to cut the, the bone on the leg of lamb to put it in, right? In the academic world, they call that the history of tradition. So we don't mean traditionalism. We mean something else by this, a living tradition that can always say, behold, I am doing a new thing. Paul is uh, engaged in, in a, 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 an extensive defense of his apostleship, so you maybe need to know the situation on the ground. Paul leaves Philippi, one of the healthiest of the, uh, of the congregations that he founded. Nothing like Corinth. And in his absence, a group of Christian missionaries arrive who tell the people in Philippi that in order for them to truly practice Christianity properly and authentically, they must keep the Jewish law. And that means that all men must be circumcised. And it means that the 673, what do you call it, and the 235 other things all need to be observed meticulously. And so Paul is both telling this group of people his credentials as a faithful Jew are absolutely unassailable. You know, we have no absolute evidence that he ever stopped practicing his religion. 
He sat lightly on those practices in the Gentile community because he believed that it was his vocation to declare to them, like Isaiah, that they're in. So he was not at pains to give them the whole lowdown on how you were supposed to do this, nor was it necessary to be in. But if we're going to talk the talk, he can do it as well, if not better, than anybody else. What he's involved in here is to say, I'm not concerned about those kinds of observances. I have noticed that my own emotional, spiritual, and mental health has been improved because I now dwell in Christ. So when we say that, it's not a pious utterance by people who wish to be religious. It means that he has learned about the depths of what it means to be a decent human being. He has learned what it means to live a life congruent with God's purposes. And he has learned that he, in his life, as he seeks to be faithful, is participating in the mighty works of Jesus Christ in big and small ways. I read a commentary on this passage to prepare the sermon, and it was written, as I discovered after I read the commentary, uh, by somebody who, shall we say, is deeply influenced by the uh, theology of the Protestant Reformation. And his comment was, here in this passage, Paul departs from the classical theory of justification by faith through grace. Well, you know. For those of you who might be interested in the scholarly New Testament studies world, there's, for the last 35 years, there's been a whole lot of work done on what the centerpiece of Paul's theology is. And there are many who suggest that it is not justification by grace through faith, but it is participation in Christ, which he is describing today in this passage from Philippians. You also need to know that uh, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, and Protestant Reformers don't disagree about the centrality of justification by faith through grace, in spite of what people might say. However, we would say, and the Roman Catholic Church would say, you cannot understand faith apart from hope and charity. Each one of us at our baptism receives three infused virtues that become ours. Faith, hope, and charity, sometimes called faith, hope, and love. It's a threefer. So you don't just get one, you get them all. And that means that a person of faith is a person of hope and a person of charity as they live into the promises of God and respond to the invitation that has now been extended and given to them through their baptism. Houston Smith, the great writer on the religions of the world, in a series on PBS a number of years ago now with Bill Moyers, was asked in one of the episodes by Bill Moyers, how would you know if you have made any spiritual progress at all? What would happen with you that would give you an indication that you might be making some progress? 
in whatever faith tradition you practice. The question was asked because they were talking about Islam and Buddhism and Christianity and what we call Hinduism and so on. And he said, invariably, the thing that a person who is intentional about their practice and who is, in fact, affected by this practice experiences an increase in generosity. And if that is not experienced, any perceived spiritual progress is bogus. So if you feel more enlightened, if you feel more uh, centered, if you feel that your family of origin issues are now at bay, but your generosity is not there, then you got more work to do. This is a good segue uh, into the gospel. The poor will always be with you. I can remember as a kid that that was kind of quoted triumphantly by many who believed, what's the use of spending all the time with that if the poor will always be with you. It's like saying, why take a bath? You'll just get dirty again. <laughs> right? You know, I hope at least some of you are involved in programs and projects and worthy works. I know some of you are that, are, that, that uh, seek to reach out uh, to those that are on the margins. Jesus believed in his preaching and teaching that somehow uh, um, our spiritual maturity is deeply connected to those things. But you also need to know that there is a difference between the thought world of the ancient Near East where, when Jesus lived and how we think about these things today and have thought about them for a long time. In Jesus' day, if you were poor, you were poor. The, the, the unequal distribution of wealth and prosperity didn't shift as individuals uh, lived the American dream and through entrepreneurial ability and zeal were able to rise above their circumstances. They could not rise above their circumstances. Jesus is speaking to the leadership of that society who has the stuff and saying you need to be generous with this stuff. Nowadays, and for 300 years, we've connected generosity with worthiness in many cases. So we're always trying to figure out if we're going to give uh, our generosity to somebody, whether or not they deserve it. And the infused virtue of charity has nothing to do with worthiness. It has to do with you giving it. It's on the other person to be dealt with with regard to the corruptness of their motives or not. And so in some sense, I would guess those in the margins always uh, are a challenge to us, aren't they? To say, what, is, what conditions do I wish to place on my generosity. Now, you know, I know every, all this about reason and common sense, 
and how you have to do this in order to move forward. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the creation internally of the generous spirit. It doesn't just have to do with the sharing of your substance. It has to do with taking other people seriously. It has to do with seeing everybody, including people on the margins, as made in the image and likeness of God. I heard a wonderful talk 25 years ago by Desmond Tutu in the auditorium in Marin City, Marin County. And he was giving a speech and he said, you know, the tradition that I come from in the Anglican Church, if you genuflect or bow before the Blessed Sacrament, we should actually be genuflecting and bowing before each other as made in the image and likeness of God. And so whenever I read that passage about the poor being always with you, it reminds me of the Christian anthropology that we all hold. Each person is made in God's image, and we ought to always default to the generous impulse one to another. So this week, see if you can think about God doing a new thing in you, or that you can be an instrument in the new thing that God is doing in the world. Give thanks for the opportunity to use Jesus Christ as the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And finally, work on your generosity. Amen.